بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وأفضل الصلاة وأتم التسليم على سيدنا ومولانا محمد الصادق الأمين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Alhamdulillah, this is lesson 109 of the Radiant Light covering the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wa Alihi Wasallam. And for the past few weeks, we've been speaking about the Battle of Khaybar. And last week, we spoke about the post-Khaybar incidents and environment. But before we move on, we have to go back a little bit to discuss an issue that arose immediately after Allah Ta'ala gave victory to the Muslims at Khaybar. After the victory was secured and the negotiations had taken place between the Muslims and the Yahud of Khaybar, a very serious incident took place. And this event was the attempted poisoning of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wa And this incident will have after effects that we will see as we get to the eighth year and the ninth year and the tenth year up until the passing of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Now this incident was carried out by a woman from Khaybar a Jewish woman by the name of Zainab bint al-Harith. And the story is that her father and her husband and her brother were all killed. One riwayah says that it was her uncle instead of her brother, but her father, her husband, and her brother or uncle was killed and her husband was Salam, Salam ibn Mishkam, and her brother or uncle was Marhab, one of the chieftains of the fort of Naim that was cut down in battle. So after the victory was given by Allah Ta'ala to the Muslims at Khaybar, in their attempt to smooth things out and reach an agreement for sharecropping that would allow the Jews of Khaybar to remain and uh, giving half of the crop yield to the Muslims, in that attempt to reach the agreement, they had prepared this elaborate meal for the Prophet ﷺ and the companions. So you can imagine, if you could put yourself there, these negotiations are taking place, these discussions are happening, and before things are finalized, they're trying to smooth things over to get what they want, which is to be able to remain. And so for that purpose, they prepared a very large meal and they presented that to the Prophet ﷺ and some of the Sahaba. So the narrations in the books of Sirah tell us that as the Prophet ﷺ was resting after Khaybar, this woman, Zainab bint al-Harith, had an idea. So she went around asking different Muslims, what is, what is the most favorite cut of meat 
that Muhammad enjoys the most. And the Muslims know this. What is his most favorite cut of meat? It's the shoulder. And so they said the shoulder. And so she made sure that a shoulder of lamb was prepared especially for him. And as they're preparing all of the other dishes in the large meal, she makes sure that she goes to that shoulder of lamb and puts poison inside of it. Actually, a large concentration of poison, not just a little. So, when the meal was finally prepared and presented to the Prophet ﷺ, he said to the Sahaba, Udunu, come close. And so they sat down to eat this meal with him. And the Prophet ﷺ reaches, of course, for his favorite cut of meat, which is the shoulder of the lamb. He reaches for this shoulder and he takes a piece of the meat and he puts it into his blessed mouth and begins to chew it. As he begins to chew it, he finds the taste of poison inside of it. So he does not swallow this. Meanwhile, the other companions are reaching for the food and eventually one of them goes over to take from the same shoulder of lamb. He takes the piece of meat and he puts it in his mouth. His name was Bishr ibn Ma'roor, a Sahabi. He takes it and put it in his mouth and as he is chewing it, he chews it, he doesn't taste the poison. So he swallows it. And as he swallowed it, the Prophet ﷺ said to the Muslims there, Abstain, stop eating. He tells them this. And then he added, The sheep bone, the bone of the sheep, the shoulder, informed me that it is poisoned. So here you have a narration that says the sheep bone, informing him that it was poisoned. Now the ulama mentioned that this is an example of the love that animals had for the Prophet Even though this animal has been slaughtered and killed, Allah Ta'ala lifted the veils for the Prophet and he was able to hear the bone of the sheep inform him that it was poisoned. So this is of course a miracle and it also shows you the great honor that these animals, even after death, their material had for the Prophet So this is one riwayah. It mentions the shoulder bone and it mentions Bishr ibn Ma'roor swallowing it. There's another narration of the same incident which says that Zainab bint al-Harith gave this sheep that was poisoned to none other than Safiya. And this is before the marriage. This is still at Khaybar. She gives it to Sophia, and Sophia has no idea that it's been poisoned. She takes the shoulder of lamb and presents it to the Prophet ﷺ. In this narration that mentions Sophia, it says that when the lamb was presented, the Prophet ﷺ said, Abstain, for it has been poisoned. And in one narration, abstain, for it has been wronged. Zulim, it's been wronged. Bishr ibn Ma'arur had already swallowed it. 
And he says, By the one who sent you with the truth and the one who honored you, I found as such in the bite that I took. Meaning he also sensed the poison. He said, however, nothing prevented me from spitting it out except that I feared it would spoil your appetite. So there's two different narrations here. One gives us a picture of the Prophet ﷺ taking a bite, tasting the poison, and removing it. And the narration, and then the narration adds that Bishop al-Ma'rur took it, didn't sense the poison, and swallowed it. The other narration indicates that Bishr also swallowed it, but he's also saying in the other riwayah that he could taste it as well. But the only reason he didn't spit it out is because he did not want to do something that he feared would spoil the appetite of the Prophet So for him, the most important thing was having proper adab in the presence of Rasulullah even though he sensed the poison was in it. Allah Ta'ala knows best. There seems to be something of a contradiction between these two narrations, but we do know the basic facts. That the poison was placed into that shoulder by Zainab bint al-Harith. The Prophet ﷺ took a bite but did not swallow it, but he felt the poison. And that Bishr ibn Ma'rur swallowed that piece of meat that had the poison inside. Now the riwayah says that after Bishr swallowed this piece of lamb that was poisoned, it wasn't very long before the effects of the poison started to work in his body. And the narration says that as soon as he stood up, his complexion began to change. He began to become very sallow and sunken, you know, a kind of darkness of kind of the internal effects of the poison are appearing on his face. And he started to feel a great deal of pain to such an extent that after he stood up, he couldn't really walk. He had to be helped by some of the other Sahaba just to walk out of that gathering. So at this stage, Rasulullah knows that there was an attempt on his life. He knows that this has been poisoned. The sheep informed him, the lamb informed him. So what does he do? He sends for Zainab bint al-Harith, this Jewish woman, and he asks her, did you poison this sheep? She replies, Man akhbaraka bihada? Who told you of this? Who informed you? And he said, That which is in my hand told me, referring to the shoulder. She said, Yes, I did poison it. He asked her, What drove you to poison the sheep? And she said, I wished to kill you. The Prophet ﷺ said to her, Allah would not give you the power to do so. So she said, you killed my father, my uncle, and my husband, and did against my people what you are aware of. So I said to myself, if he is a king, we will be relieved of him. And if he is truly a prophet, he will be informed or he will not be harmed. And we see what happened. He was informed that it was poisoned. What did the Prophet ﷺ At first, he forgave her. You imagine yourself in that situation. 
I wouldn't forgive someone if they poisoned my food. I would want them punished. But he forgave her. In the greater interest of calling to Islam, he forgave her. And that is his haqq. But who else is poisoned? Bishr bin Ma'roor is poisoned. Bishr gets worse and worse from the effects of the poison. And he succumbs to it. He dies. So he forgave her, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But once Bishr bin Ma'roor had died, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam changed the verdict and she was ordered to be killed according to the laws of qisas, of just retribution. Why did the judgment change? Because if someone wrongs you, you have the right to forgive them or you have the right to seek retribution. It's your haqq, whichever one you want to do. But you don't have the right to forgive someone on behalf of another person. And he's now died from the poisoning. So the punishment is carried out according to the laws of qisas. Uh, and this is important uh, in other areas of fiqh as well. The idea of forgiving someone for what they do against someone else. That, that doesn't exist. You can forgive someone for wronging you, but you can't forgive that person on behalf of another. They have to be the one to forgive. And if they've died, you can't assume that they would have forgiven. You have to go according to the asl that they would seek retribution. This also has an impact in our fiqh in the area of sab or shatim. Right? Shatim an Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam. Right? If the person insults the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam now, billah, this person receives the prescribed punishment. It's true that people would insult the Prophet ﷺ in his lifetime and he would forgive them. He would not punish them. He would overlook. But we don't have a right to stand in his place and forgive them for those things on his behalf. And this is according to the fiqh. Anyhow, so he doesn't forgive her for Bishr bin Ma'roor. He forgives her for her poisoning him. But for Bishop bin Ma'roor, she gets punished. So after this happened, the Prophet started to feel the effects of the poison. He didn't swallow the meat. But because it was in his mouth, he absorbed some of this poison and he began to feel the effects of it. And it is at this stage that we find in the seerah, the Prophet getting hijama done on a regular basis. It's mentioned in one riwayah that he would have it done yearly as a result of this poisoning. The hadith in the Sunan of Imam al-Nasai mentions that the angel Jibreel alayhi salam came down and instructed him to do the hijama. And so he would do the hijama every time he would feel the effects of the poison. He would have that done between his blessed shoulder blades, sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam. And we have a riwayah <clears throat> from Um Salama that speaks about this. Um Salama radiallahu anha, she says, Ya Rasulullah, every year you feel the pain from the poison sheep you ate. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam replied, Nothing affected me except what was written while Adam was still 
clay was still in a state of clean. This is what Allah has decreed. The prophets endure a lot. Some of the prophets before him were killed. Some of them, like Prophet Yahya السلام, was beheaded. So this is something common to the prophets, that they suffer at the hands of their people. And so he said, this is all decreed by Allah Ta'ala. So after this incident of the poisoning, something changed in the policy. Before, he would accept gifts from people when they would bring food and he would eat freely. But after this, if anyone ever came with a gift of food, he would not eat that food until he would have the gift giver sit down and eat it with him. So you, you, you don't have, to the best of my knowledge, we don't have any example of a person with a job title of being the taste tester. You know, some of the stories we hear about ancient European monarchs and other monarchs, they would have an employee whose only job is to take the food and eat it just to make sure it's not poisoned. And if they don't die, then they can give it over. We don't have that. But what we do have is a person giving a gift of food, he's asked to partake of it. If he doesn't, what does that tell you? And it was so interesting, this is a bit of a tangent, is that this attempt at poisoning, it's so prevalent in Islamic history. It's so prevalent. So prevalent. If you read Maqtal uh, al-Talibiyyin, if you read other works of early history, you find so many examples of people who were killed by poisoning. The grandson, Sayyiduna Hassan ibn Ali, radiallahu anhuma, he died from the effects of poison. And there's debate about who exactly did it, but he died from the effects of poison. You go further into Islamic, uh, later into Islamic history, you have, um, it was Mawla Idris, the, the founder of what we call today the Kingdom of Morocco. He was killed through poisoning. And his son, Mawla Idris al-Azhar, the second Idris, his son, the, the mother took him to the city of what is now Fez, and she would only feed her son food that she prepared from the raw ingredients for years. Why? Because she knows what happened to his father. So she wanted to make sure that whatever he's eating is not poison. No one's going to, to attempt to take his life. So she would only feed him from the food that she sourced from the raw ingredients and cooked it herself. Anyhow, so this is something that continued. So this happened at Khaybar right after Allah gave them victory. So now we're at the stage of the seerah where we have the post-Khaybar environment up until Umratul Qada, the Umrah that was done as a makeup for the attempted Umrah that didn't happen, but that resulted in the Treaty of Al Hudaybiyah. So we remember that they went, 1200 Muslims went with the intention of making their Umrah. And they were unable to complete it, but that resulted in the Treaty of Al Hudaybiyah being drawn up. So, six months after Khaybar, the Prophet and the Muslims go to Mecca to perform the makeup Umrah. Because you remember in the treaty, the agreement was that they would not make Umrah that year. So, this is now a year later after the treaty. 
So what we're looking at now are the events that took place between Khaybar and the makeup Umrah. So six months. In that six month period, what we have are various minor expeditions, minor saraya. We don't have anything extremely eventful, but we have a few narrations. So we have the Sariya of Umar bin Khattab radiallahu anhu to a place called Turaba. And this is a valley about two days away from Mecca. Ibn Sa'ad says it's four days from Mecca. And this is going to the south towards Najran. So if you look at the map of Saudi Arabia today, Najran is in the far south, south of Mecca. This is about a two-day or maybe a four-day journey from Mecca in the south. So it's way below Mecca, far from Medina. And the Prophet ﷺ had sent Umar anhu to this place with just 30 riders, 30 riders to deal with a rebellious tribe known as Hawazin. And when they got there, what do you think happened? They run away. This happened so many times in the seerah. So that's all it was. It was very uneventful. They go there, they run away, nothing happens. Then you have the Sariya of Bashir ibn Sa'ad to Banu Murrah. And this took place in the month of Sha'ban. And it also consists of 30 men. And this was not completely uneventful, but it was a small skirmish. It said that there was some arrow fire exchanged and a few men were killed. Among those who were wounded was Bashir himself, the leader of this expedition. And he ended up in being wounded and all. It wasn't easy to go back to Medina in his state. So he ended up taking a shortcut, going to Fadak, where he basically rested and healed up. And eventually he goes back to Medina after the soldiers had already returned to Medina. So that's, that's really it. Then you have the Sariya of Ghalib ibn Abdullah to Mayfa'a in the area of Najd. And the Najd is going towards the east. This consisted of about 130 riders. And this too was a minor excursion. And the purpose of the excursion was to deal with some of these rebellious Najdi tribes that had aggressive intentions against Medina. And this Sariya is said to be the Sariya where the famous incident took place with the Sahabi young man, Usama ibn Zayd radiallahu anhu. So here there's some discrepancy, there's some difference. Some say that this incident took place in this Sariya. Other scholars of Sirah say that was a different expedition to Huraqa, a clan of Juhayna. But at any rate, this narration is a very important one, and it teaches us very, a very important lesson. Imam al-Bukhari, rahmatullahi alayhi, he records that Usama bin Zayd radiallahu anhu said, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam dispatched us to al-Huraqa, and we descended upon those people in the morning, and we defeated them in battle. One man from the Ansar, as well as myself, came upon a man from this tribe. You know, a lone person off to the side. He says, 
when we surrounded him, this man from that tribe shouted, La ilaha illallah. La ilaha illallah. So the Ansari with Usama bin Zaid kept back. He didn't attack this man. Meanwhile, Usama bin Zaid says, I stabbed him with my spear and I killed him. So here's a man saying the Shahada, Usama bin Zaid stabs him with his spear and kills him. He says, when we returned, this news of what happened reached the Messenger of Allah وسلم, And he said to me, Oh, Usama, did you kill him after he said, La ilaha illallah? I replied, he was using it as a shield to protect himself from being killed in battle. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, kept repeating the same phrase over and over again. Did you kill a man who said, La ilaha illallah? Did you kill a man who said, La ilaha illallah? And Usama says, he kept repeating his words until I wished that I had not embraced Islam before that day. So if you put yourself in his position, he's basically saying, I wish that that was the day I became Muslim and not before because I really messed up. He's feeling really guilty and really bad for what he did. In another riwayah of the same incident, it says that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said to him, Usama, did you split open his heart to know if he was truthful or lying? And after this, Usama bin Zayd says, I shall never kill a man who says, La ilaha illallah. And the lesson here is very obvious. The statement, the shahada, is very weighty. And if your life is not in immediate danger, even in the heat of battle, when a person says that, you have to stop. You can't carry out anything else after that. You don't know the content of their heart, but you can't assume otherwise once they've said it. We only go by the vahir, the outward. We don't have the ability to open their heart and see if they're telling the truth or lying. We have to assume they're telling the truth. If after that he tries to attack them again, of course, he could defend himself. But this was a great lesson that he learned. And this was said to be in this Sariyah, the Sariyah of Ghalib ibn Abdullah. Others say it was another expedition. We then have the Sariyah of Bashir ibn Sa'ad again, but this time to Al-Yam and Jubar. This was in the month of Shawwal, in the seventh year after the Hijrah. And the story behind this is that a group of the tribe of Ghatafan, and we've heard about them a lot, they gathered in this place called Jinab in order to meet with none other than Uyayna ibn Husn. Who is Uyayna ibn Husn? He's the leader of the Ghatafan. He's the one who had that negative interaction with the Prophet and to whom or about whom the Prophet said that he is Al-Ahmaq Al-Muta'a. He is the foolish person obeyed among his people. Uriyayn ibn Hislan actually becomes a Muslim eventually, but at this stage he's still this rebellious uh, Bedouin tribesman who's plotting and wanting to get uh, the wealth and goods that the people of Medina have. So it's said that a group of Ghatafan went to this place called Jinab to go meet him, 
to organize a surprise attack against Medina. And then we've said this before, that we see this from the Ghazwa of Ahzab, and we see this in the lead up to Khaybar. They have offered to participate with the others and take part in fighting, but it wasn't for religious reasons or political reasons. It was opportunistic. They just wanted a chance to get money, to get crops, to get the goods of the world. It wasn't due to any religious opposition. So they're looking for another opportunity to raid Medina and pilfer goods and take stuff. So, of course, the word of this gets back to the Prophet ﷺ. And so he gives Bashir ibn Sa'ad the liwa, the battle flag, and sends him there with 300 men. So they travel by night and they rest in the day and they get into that area and they manage to capture some livestock and the shepherds looking after the livestock, they flee. And the Ghatafanis had also fled by the time the Muslims arrived. And by the time the Muslims got into the area, everyone had fled except for two men. They only managed to capture two men and they were captured without any fighting. These two men were brought back to Medina. And as soon as they get to Medina, they encounter the Prophet ﷺ face to face, and they become, a Muslim, they become Muslim on the spot. And after that, they're freed. That was that. So these are some of the saraya that took place between Khaybar and Umratul Qadha. But we have another story. It's a, kind of a long story. Another incident that took place in this in-between period between Khaybar and Umratul Qadha. And that is the story of Thumama ibn Uthal. Thumama ibn Uthal al-Hanafi. And when we say al-Hanafi, we don't mean he was a Hanafi in his madhab. Al-Hanafi here is because he is from Banu Hanifa. Right? So Thumama ibn Uthal al-Hanafi was one of the most powerful Arab rulers in Jahiliyyah. He was the chief of Banu Hanifa and the ruler of this area called Yamama. So when you learn about those letters that were sent by the Prophet ﷺ after Hudaybiyah, we mentioned the one sent to, the one sent to Najashi and the Qaisar and the Kisra, and Muqawqis, he also sent letters to some of these Arab tribal leaders. Thumama ibn Uthal was one such leader. He received a letter from the Prophet ﷺ inviting him to Islam. When he read that letter, he became enraged. He felt that this was a threat to his rule. And he was so angry at the letter that he threatened to kill the Prophet ﷺ. And the narrations tell us that <clears throat> he threatened this and was wait, waiting quietly for the right opportunity to carry out his attack against the Prophet ﷺ. But as time went by, he lost interest. You know, people, when they're angry, they say they're going to do something, and they're serious about it. But they have other things to tend to, and as time goes by, the, you know, it's a memory, and they forget about it, they move on to something else. And that's what happened to Thumam ibn Uthal. He just forgot about it and 
kept doing what he normally did. Until one day, he's sitting with one of his uncles, and the uncle reminds him about his old plan to kill the Prophet Don't you remember? You, you promised, you swore you're going to attack him and kill him. And when he said that, Thumama was now revived. Oh yeah, I said that. I'm going to do it. So now it's been rekindled, this desire to go kill the Prophet So the Sirah accounts tell us that in that time when he was thinking about doing it again, he happened to meet a group of companions. And being in their territory, he had these companions killed. Of course, the news of this reaches the Prophet that some of the companions were killed by Fumama ibn Uthal al-Hanafi, the leader of Banu Hanifa. So when the Prophet found out, he essentially declared Thumama a wanted man. And anyone who finds him could take him out, capture him, bring him to justice. He's now a wanted man. It just so happened that around the same time, Thumama bin Uthal decided that he wants to make an Umrah. Of course, the Jahili Umrah, not an Islamic Umrah. They had some of these rites of Ibrahim still with them, but mixed with idolatry and other practices. So he wanted to go make Umrah. But there's one issue here. To make Umrah, to get all the way to Mecca, guess where he has to pass by? He has to pass through Medina. He has to go on that highway route to get to Mecca. So he leaves to go for Umrah. And as he's going through Medina, he gets caught. He was apprehended. So the story is that on the outskirts of Medina, you had different groups of Muslims whose job it was to patrol the area to look for any strangers. Because it's a small town. Everyone knows everyone. Even if they don't know them personally, they recognize people's faces. So if you're coming as a stranger, you're going to get some attention put on you. And if you come with bad intentions, then they're going to find you. So one of these groups on patrol came upon Thumama, saw him as a stranger, didn't know who he was, but they, they, got, they got bad vibes from him, and they didn't recognize him, so they just apprehended him. They didn't know who he was. So what did they do? They apprehend him, they take him to Medina proper, to the city, and they bring him inside of the masjid and they tie him to one of the columns. So here now is Thumama who wanted to do revenge. He's now captured, he's now tied up in one of the columns of the masjid of the Prophet The individuals who captured him and tied him up are essentially waiting for the Prophet to come out of his house and go and question this man for himself to decide what should be done. Because they don't know who he is. Should he be let go? Should, is he an enemy? Is he not? They don't know. So they're waiting. And the Prophet ﷺ came out, and as he was about to go into the masjid, he sees Thumama ibn Uthal tied up in a column of the masjid, and he asked those sahaba, do you know who you've taken? They said, no, 
Ya Rasulullah, we don't know who it is. And he replies, that is Thumam ibn Uthal al-Hanafi. You have done well in capturing him. So the Prophet doesn't talk to Thumama just yet. He just notes that he's been captured, praises those companions for a job well done, and he goes back home to his family. At home, he tells his family members to go get some food and prepare it and bring it to Thumama bin Uthal. And then he tells someone to go to one of his camels and to milk it and bring that camel milk to Thumama bin Uthal. So now they've made the food, they have the camel milk, and they go to Thumama. And now the Prophet ﷺ is there with this food. And he sits in front of Thumama and he says, what do you have to say for yourself? Thumama, he says, if you want to kill in reprisal for what I did, you can do so. Thumama says, you can have someone also of noble blood to kill in return for me. Or, if you want, out of your generosity and largesse, you can forgive me, and I'll be grateful. And if you want money for compensation, I'll give you whatever amount of money you ask for. So the Prophet ﷺ leaves him for two days. So for two days, he's tied up, and he's being presented good food, camel milk, but for two days he's left, but he keeps sending the food, keeps sending the camel milk. Two days later, the Prophet ﷺ goes back to him and says, what do you have to say for yourself? And Thumama says exactly what he said two days before. And the Prophet ﷺ goes back home, doesn't say anything else. He comes back again the next day and says, what do you have to say for yourself? What do you think Thumama said the third time? Exactly what he said the second time and the first time. Then the Prophet ﷺ on this third time looks at the companions and says, set him free. Just like that. He killed some Sahaba. He's captured, he's tied up. But after these few days, he tells them, set him free. Amazing. So Thumama is untied. Freed, he leaves the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ and he rides out until he reaches a palm grove on the outskirts of Medina. In pre today's time, it was basically near Baqir. So, in, you know, from our reference point, it's still quite close. But back then, that was the outskirts. So he goes to this palm grove on the outskirts near Baqir. He waters his camel and he washes himself because he was tied up for a few days. And then he turns back and goes to the Prophet's masjid and he stands inside of the masjid before the Muslims and he says, Ashadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah. He takes shahada. He becomes a Muslim. Why didn't he become Muslim in those days when he was being interrogated or being asked questions by the Prophet Why did he wait to be freed to go and wash up and come back, it's, he's communicating a message. He's not just saying the shahada to get free. He was freed 
before that was uttered. So he comes back in a state of hurriya, of freedom, and says it openly and willingly. In this acknowledge, he's acknowledging his sincerity in becoming Muslim. So then after he becomes a Muslim publicly in the presence of the Sahaba, he goes to the Prophet ﷺ and says, Ya Rasulullah, O Messenger of Allah, not Muhammad anymore. Ya Rasulullah, Wallahi, by Allah, there was never on this earth a face more detestable than yours. Now yours is the dearest of all faces to me. It's amazing that he says this. The issue with the mushrikun of Quraysh and others is that although they look at the Prophet ﷺ, they don't see Sayyiduna Muhammad ibn Abdullah, Rasulullah, or Nabiullah. Instead, they look at him and they see Muhammad Yatimu Quraysh, the orphan boy of Quraysh. And in Surah Al-A'raf, the seventh chapter of the Qur'an, Allah Ta'ala speaks about the idols and says, وَتَرَاهُمْ يَنظُرُونَ إِلَيْكَ وَهُمْ لَا يُبُصِرُونَ And the ulama have taken that as a kind of iqtibas, a kind of ishara. Because Allah says about the idols, you see them looking at you, but they don't truly see. And that's the idols, right? That's the primary misdaq, the referent in the verse. But the ulama have extracted from this a kind of ishara, that that's also what's going on with these people. You see them looking at you, but they see Muhammad Yatimu Quraysh. They don't look at you and see Rasulullah, Nabiullah, Habibullah. And that's why he says, never, there was no, never on this earth a face more detestable than yours. Now yours is the dearest face to all of me. It's the same face, it's the same beauty, it's the same majesty. But the veils have been lifted from his own heart, and now he sees him as he should be seen, because now Iman is there. So he becomes Muslim, and he says, I've killed some of your men, and I'm at your mercy. What will you have done to me? You see the honesty of Thumama here too, because he could have just become Muslim on his own and just left, fearing that there's going to be a qisas carried out against him. But not only does he become Muslim publicly, he presents himself to the Prophet informs him that he's a Muslim, and says, I killed some of your companions, do to me whatever you want, even if it's retribution, even if it means I'm getting killed as a punishment for killing them. The Prophet looks upon him with the eye of compassion, and he says, there's no blame on you, Ya Thumama, because becoming Muslim obliterates the past actions. It marks a new beginning. So he's fresh. And Thumama has received guidance from Allah Ta'ala and now his life has been spared by the Prophet So now he has relief upon relief. Right? He's relieved from the darkness of kufr because Allah guided him and he's relieved from the possible retribution he might have faced. So in this joy and surprise, he made a vow. He swore a solemn oath and said, Wallahi, 
I will place my whole self and my sword and whoever is with me at your service and in the service of your deen. He continued, Ya Rasulullah, when your horsemen captured me, I was on my way to perform the Umrah. What do you think I should do now? The Prophet told him to go ahead and carry out his Umrah. But he added, you have to do it according to the laws of Allah and his messenger, not the jahili version of the Umrah. And so he told him how to do the Umrah properly, and Thumama set out to fulfill his intention of making the Umrah. So he leaves. He goes to Mecca, and as he's reaching the valley, he begins shouting in a very loud voice something that alarmed the Mushrikun of Mecca. He utters the talbiyah, which was far into the mushrikun of Jahiliyyah. They had their own talbiyah, and their talbiyah included mention of their false gods. So now they're hearing the talbiyah of Muhammad and the Muslims, and so they feel great anger and alarm. Who is this person coming shouting the talbiyah like this? They draw out their swords and they're looking for the voice and they want to go deal with this person. One of them had taken out his bow and arrow, had strung the arrow and was waiting to fire it. As they come closer to the voice, Thumama keeps uttering the talbiyah and he's looking at them, not as someone who's scared, as a lone Muslim in Mecca like this. He's looking at them with... Uh, uh, Pride, izzatul nafs and defiance. What are you going to do? Right, that's how he looks at them. And as one of the young Quraysh was about to fire the arrow, one of the elders grabbed his hand and said, What are you doing? Stop. Do you know who this is? This is Thumama ibn Uthal. He's the ruler of Yamama. They said, If you harm him, his people are going to cut our supplies our food supplies, and that will have dire consequences for us. He's untouchable. And Thumama knew that. That's why he's uttering the tadbiyah. He's not worried about anything because what are they going to do? They're going to harm him? He knows and they know that if he's harmed and word gets back to the people of Yamama that their leader has been killed, that's it for their food supplies. Mecca is still a very barren and desolate valley. The food comes from the outside. So their swords were drawn at that time. But once they realized it was Thumama, they put the swords back in the scabbards and they go up to Thumama. And although they can't harm him, they have some sharp words to say. They say, what's wrong with you? What's your problem? Have you given up the deen of your forefathers? He says, I have not given in, but I have decided to follow the best deen, the deen of Muhammad. And feeling defiant, he said something else. He said, I swear to you, by the Lord of this house, that after I get back to Yamama, no grain of wheat or any of its produce shall reach you until you too follow Muhammad. So they're getting boycotted either way. 
harm him or leave him alone, that is happening. Because he just swore an oath. So they didn't know what to do. So Mama goes on. He carries out their umrah under their watchful eyes. They're just watching him do it. They can't do anything to stop him. And he goes back to Yamama. He goes back to his native land and he tells his people to withhold the supplies from Quraysh. So they, he enacted a boycott against Quraysh. Now, is he in the political domain of Medina? He's not, which means he's not subject to the terms of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah because he has his own kingdom in Yamama. So this boycott was enacted by him against Quraysh. And it gradually began to have an impact and things became tighter and tighter and tighter for Quraysh. The prices of food began to rise. Hunger began to increase. And there was a, a real fear of starvation among Quraysh. So in that fear, they decided to write a letter to the Prophet ﷺ. In that letter, they said, Our agreement with you, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, is that you should maintain the bonds of kinship. But you've gone against that. You've cut the bonds of kinship and you've killed and caused death through hunger. Thumama ibn Uthal has cut our supplies and harmed us. Perhaps you would see fit to instruct him to resume sending us what we need. The Prophet ﷺ immediately sent a messenger to Yamama, instructing Thumama to lift the boycott and resume the food supplies to Quraysh. And Thumama obeyed that command and lifted the boycott. And that is his story. Radiallahu anhu, we say. Now, when you reflect on this story, there's a lot of lessons you can draw from it. But one that stands out for me is, number one, recognizing that someone like Thumama bin Uthal has already had interactions with Muslims. He had interactions. He received the letter. He's, he's been around some of the Muslims. You know, he, he knows how Muslims are, which means we can assume that he's, he's seen Muslims pray, and interact with one another. But now that he's captured and tied up in the masjid, what is he actually seeing in those few days that leads him to become a Muslim? It's probably not watching Muslims pray in congregation. He's seeing that. What's going on? What is he witnessing? We can assume that he's witnessing the generosity of the Prophet He's also witnessing the brotherhood among the Muslim community. He's watching real life people have real life interactions of brotherhood, of warmth, of caring, of kindness, of concern, of good character. He's watching all of that unfold among the people coming to the masjid. And he's also being fed quite well and taken care of, despite the circumstances. So we can say that what led Thumama to become a Muslim, in terms of the asbab, obviously, it's guidance from Allah. But in terms of asbab, it's that he saw real community. Real community. So the question you have to ask yourself is, how many people could come to a random masjid anywhere in North America 
and feel something of what Sulaymanah felt. A lot of people come into a masjid as a stranger and no one talks to them. No one greets them. They're just a stranger sitting in the back watching things and they see people on their phones or just in their cliques and no one talks to anybody but their own group and then they leave, right? So it's really important that we're mindful of how we are with people who come to the masjid and the impact that can have on them leading them to come back or never come back again. So that's, a, that's one thing you can derive from this story. Another thing you can derive from this story is the precedent of boycotting the enemy. So the precedent of boycotts in Islam starts from this incident. Thumama ibn Uthal was the first person among the Muslims to institute a boycott against the enemies. Now, according to the fuqaha, the jurist, the basic principle is that it is permissible to interact with and do business buying and selling with Jews and Christians and idol worshippers and others because we have so many examples in the ahadith of both the Prophet ﷺ and the companions buying and selling and trading, lending, putting items into you know pledge, and other kinds of mu'amalat with people, regardless of their deen. You have the Yahud in Medina, with whom the Prophet ﷺ had business interactions. You had you had people who had a treaty with him, with whom he had business dealings. You have those who broke the treaty, who were either killed for their betrayal, or expelled, or left alone if there was some greater interest. So. The question here is, is there any allowance to buy and sell with people who are in a state of war against the Muslims? This is the question. And undoubtedly, you understand the relevance of this question in light of what's going on in the world. If there is an enemy attacking Muslims, is it permissible Islamically for you to buy and sell, to engage in basic business transactions with that enemy. Well, we have a hadith in Bukhari. Imam al-Bukhari mentions this hadith and he gives the chapter a name. The name of the bab is the bab on buying and selling with the mushrikeen and people who are at war with Islam, al-muharibun. And he narrates the hadith from Abdul Rahman. Ibn Abi Bakr radiallahu anhu who says we were with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam when a mushrik man came with some sheep that he was shepherding the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said are they for sale or a gift he said they are for sale and so he bought a sheep from him so the hadith we see that under the tabweeb of Imam al-Bukhari he puts it under the chapter heading buying and selling with the mushrikeen and people who are at war with Islam. Al-Imam al-Nawawi, rahmatullahi alayhi, he mentions in his Sharh ala Sahih Muslim that the Muslims have unanimous agreement that it is permissible to interact with Ahlul Dhimma, non-Muslims living under Muslim rule, and other disbelievers, as long as the object of the transaction is not haram. But it is not permissible, he says, for a Muslim to sell weapons or tools of war 
to those who are waging war against the Muslims or anything that helps them to support their religion. So, if a person boycotts with the intention of showing his disapproval at their actions and wanting them to feel it in their bank account and pockets, that's praiseworthy. That's good. But if someone also engages in some transaction with them under the principle that it's permissible to deal with them buying things that they may need, then there's no sin on that person either. That person's not sinful if they do that. As long as they are not contributing to the war material, giving them the weapons, selling the weapons, or you know, somehow supporting them in that direct way. So if it's just for daily needs, a person could conceivably buy and sell from those people if it's for their daily needs. That would not be sinful. So the conclusion is that boycotting is a tool. It's also a choice. You know, Muslims see what's going on and they get angry, rightly so. And they want to boycott. And that's a good instinct. But it has to be with principles. You cannot create, uh, you cannot base your allegiance and disavowal, your wala and bara, on the basis of whether someone is drinking a Starbucks or not. It doesn't work that way. Right? You can't boycott someone who refuses to stop drinking Coke. It doesn't work that way. Because there's, a very, there's, there's no direct connection between that product and that company and contributing to a war effort. Right? There's a question of fiqh and there's a question of fact. Right? Do those companies, are they just dedicating a massive part of their budget just to send to the army, to the IDF? Like, how does that work? If they are a publicly traded company, you can find out what their expenditures are, what their earnings are, where they're giving their money. You can verify very easily where they're giving the money to. So it's one thing to boycott because there's some indirect support and you want them to feel it. That's a good instinct. But you don't base uh, your wala and bara over whether someone's drinking Starbucks or not. People get carried away. And the principle is that if the thing is halal and you're not contributing directly to war material, and it's not even people involved in the war itself, that, that transaction in its asl is halal, right? If it was in principle haram, why would the boycott have been stopped? Why, why, was, why didn't it continue with Umar ibn Uthad, right? There was a hudna, there was a treaty, a temporary cessation of hostilities, but the default between the Prophet ﷺ, Ahlul Medina, and the Meccans was conflict, right? So boycotts are, they're more detailed and more nuanced than the way they are presented on TikTok videos and YouTube shorts. <laughs> they really are. And in addition to economic boycott, there's also social boycott. And this is where we should call out the hypocrisy of people who are clamoring for boycotting some things but not others. Their boycotting is largely an emotional response. 
And we don't fault them for the anger and the emotional response, but it has to be principled. Because how are you going to boycott Coca-Cola and Starbucks and whatever else they're boycotting, but you're announcing the boycott on Instagram, Facebook, platforms that are just as much involved financially with that entity than Coca-Cola and Starbucks allegedly are. So there's a social boycott. How about you boycott the culture? How about you boycott Hollywood? Because the people in Hollywood, they are the people who shape the culture, and their culture is, geared, is, is in alliance with those ideologies and with those people in that state. So it's hypocritical to boycott a product, but not boycott socially. Boycotting Hollywood, boycotting these media entities, boycotting social media groups, companies that have offices in that country, right? It's a bit, it's, there's a cognitive dissonance here. So anyhow, the precedent is in this story, but there's some fiqhi details about uh, what one can and cannot do. And it's not so cut and dry as it is uh, made to seem on social media. So, Wallahu wa rasulu a'alam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. One question, go ahead. No, he's from Yamama. Eventually, yeah. Well, yeah. There's, there, was, there were some troubles that occurred during the Khilafah of Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu. You have from that area the false prophet Musaydima and Kadhab and others. So it wasn't settled where they all just became Muslim and it was happily ever after. But yes, eventually, I mean, in that, everyone's Muslim there today, alhamdulillah. Very well discussed topic is uh, having view of the attempt of poisoning Prophet with Allahu Yafunuka Mila Nas. How we like, understand mm. that and this attempt left effect on the Prophet. Yeah. So, what is the meaning of Usma here? And the Usma here, Allah protects him from the people in any attempt of theirs to stop the message, to put out the light of Allah. He was, he was affected by the poison for sure. And some of the ulama talk about the effects lasting up until his final passing, counting his passing as a shahada, because they look at that as the immediate cause. It took a few years to take effect. So the verse, Wallahu ya'asimuka minan nas, Allah shall secure you or protect you against people, does not mean that he won't feel physical pain at the hands of his enemies. It doesn't mean that they couldn't fight him and cause some injury to him. What it means is he is to carry out his message, to convey the message of truth, and not worry about their plots, not worry about their attempts to stop him, because Allah commands him, 
carry out openly and proclaim openly what you're commanded to proclaim, no one's going to stop you from conveying the message. So the message never stopped, despite the poisoning, despite the attacks, despite the injuries that he received at Uhud on other occasions. That's what it means. Yeah. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen.